This is Scott Becker with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast with a special episode with Robbie Allen. Robbie's the chief executive officer of 1GI, uh, one of the gastroenterology endoscopy companies that's been private equity funded. He's one of the brightest guys in the business. We thought we'd talk to him about really two things today, the outlook for GI and what he's seeing both now and for next year, as well as sort of what he's seeing in the private equity world, more acquisitions, less acquisitions, sort of his perspective and what he sees out there. Also, if we can touch a little bit about what he's seeing in this relationship to private equity in hospitals and health systems. Robbie, can you take a moment and introduce yourself and maybe start to tell us a little bit about what's going on in the GI sector currently? Sure. Thanks for having me, Scott. Always a pleasure. Um, I run 1GI, which is one of the three national platforms that is consolidating a lot of the GI space. We're mostly East Coast, uh, in fact, entirely east, east of the Mississippi is a way to think about that. So I'm not originally a, a practice management guy. I came from technology and innovation, so I probably approached the space a little bit differently. Um, so that's me. Um, in terms of the space itself, GI is seeing a lot of the same disruptions that everywhere else in medicine is, particularly kind of as we come out of that pandemic hangover, a lot of disruption in the number of providers. Uh, you know, you're having to take a, a specialty that sits at around 10 to 12,000 available physicians, and we're expecting to be 10 to 15% short of that number, even with existing fellowships over the coming, call it 10 years. So by definition, you have to rethink how you provide services. Um, that's kind of the, that's the prevailing trend that everybody loses sleep over right now. Um, and then the second is the disruption of how we and what we do. Uh, you know, technology curve and the, the innovation curve is rapidly changing a procedure like GI that relies heavily on, at least for revenue today, the biggest driver of revenue is a screening colonoscopy. And I think you're certainly as well-versed as anybody in this, that the, the screening business across medicine is shifting at a, an incredible pace. And so as that moves away from procedural screening and more towards sort of liquid biopsy and genetic testing, that's going to shake up the industry as well. Hopefully the two axes of those two issues will, will coincide. You know, the, the reduced need for screening colonoscopies will coincide with a reduction in overall available providers. And you, know, you could just catch the catch the valley at the right time. Um, I somehow doubt that those will coincide well. So, but, but but talk about that for a second because people have been talking about the demise of the screening colonoscopy for now, you know, fifteen years now. And in every time we've seen that discussion, the number of screening colonoscopies in the country has just gone up and up and up and up uh, to a point where you know gastroenterologists are both burnt out. They're one of the busiest medical specialties. We'll have an in, impending shortage if we don't already have one. And, you know, and, and there's enough gastroenterologists that are proceduralists that have, you know, arthritis from doing so many colonoscopies. And I say that facetiously. But but what is what what do you see in terms of that trend on screening colonoscopies? Because when I've been hearing this talk of sort of the reduction in screening colonoscopies for a long time, but it's not yet happened. Do you see things closer on the horizon blood tests, virtuals, liquid biopsies, other things that will drive us quicker to that transition. What's your sense of that? I think uh, much like you, I've heard the same cataclysmic talk. Uh, and what's changed now is that we have, with things like AI and the computing power that goes with that, we have tools at our disposal 
that let us analyze large swaths of data and population health. We also have tools and that those same trends of technology and innovation are happening on blood tests, um, genetic testing. So we're able to get the specificity and the sensitivity of things like a liquid biopsy or a blood biopsy to levels that we've never seen before. We're able to target genetically specific markers for the types of cancers that we see very specifically. And as AI integrated kind of imaging and analysis comes into play in an ever increasing way, I don't personally think you'll do a colonoscopy without AI at some point in the next 10 years, but you can also apply that same kind of AI to things like capsule endoscopy. And so you, you move into this world where screenings become much more a combination of possibly a, a swallowed pill that's analyzed via AI along with a liquid biopsy, both are negative, we'll see you in five years for a, a return. It removes some of that early phase screening. What it also though does, in no way does it provide full relief to the specialty because it's going to increase the number of therapeutic scopes that you do. You're going to catch more things with that. So it's not the end of the specialty but it's shifting us into more of a value-based care paradigm. Let's, let's use these more effective, more efficient, cheaper screening protocols and move the, the skill set over to the therapeutic side, which is, is really, that's been missing largely in GI now for the last 20 years. As you said, we're, we're doing mountains of screening colonoscopies. What a fascinating perspective. And Robbie, hospitals and health systems, what do you see in terms of how they play into all this and so forth? I mean, there's certainly plenty of hospitals that still have full GI labs, full contingents of, of proceduralists and, and gastroenterologists. There's other proceduralists, gastroenterologists that are completely independent, really. Where do you see the two of them playing together? What, what's your sense of that, or what do you see? You know, I, they haven't historically always played well together. Uh, the, the old paradigm for hospitals of, well, we built it. We have these this fixed asset that we've spent all this money on, the hospital, the center, the all of the equipment, and therefore you should come and pay a hospital rate. I think that ship has sailed. So as you see sort of forced migration of procedures into the, the most efficacious and efficient cost-wise way to treat, you're putting the hospital systems a little bit at odds with well-run larger groups that sit outside the hospital that are able to provide the same care for significantly less just because of a lower cost burden on fixed assets. The reality, though, is those things also always move in cycles. You have folks that kind of drive towards physician employment or, or the acquisition of practices, and then you, they tend to leave those in, in cyclical patterns of 10 to 15 years. GI has always been pretty independent. The guys who end up in the hospital systems and the academic systems generally profile a little bit differently than those who stay independent. And so the trick is going to be how can we all work together to capture the, the full cascade of care in GI because the hospital really should be focused um, in that acuity of care environment on the things that happen after the colonoscopy. So when we find advanced cancer or things that are progressing to things that we can't treat in an ASC or in the office or in the home, that's where the hospital really steps in. And it's actually the the economic aspect of this that the hospital really does want to capture. So long-term, there has to be a partnership there. But as healthcare moves to the home, as the site of care keeps doing this inexorable march to the home, you know, the hospital of the future being the home, in the words of a Bill Frist, this is, this is coming. And so there needs to be better management of 
how we share that whole care cascade. And I, I wouldn't say that we do it well today. It's still incredibly competitive and binary. You know, the hospital wants to own the whole chain, the supply chain of patients, if you will. And the reality is a gastroenterology practice, no matter how big, is not prepared to compete on that front. So instead, they compete on the service line itself. Thank you very much. And another question, you know, the latest numbers I've heard is that private equity sort of as an area is sitting about on a trillion two in money to invest or commitments to invest. What are you seeing there in terms of private equity interest in acquisitions, bolt-ons, platforms, both respect to GI and more generally, what's your sense of what's going on with private equity currently? I, I think there's still an enormous interest, largely being driven by by the dry powder sitting on the sidelines, certainly larger deals, deals that require syndicated debt, where you're having to put together a package of, of lending money that gets well north of 50 million. Those are harder to do right now, just because the lending rates and SOFA curves are kind of pretty high up there and it makes those difficult to price. So, and multiples have yet to come down. They may be reduced by maybe a turn on the acquisition side, but not significantly enough to offset that increased cost of capital. That said, I think the best private equity firms recognize that the opportunities out there, you just have to watch the seller expectation because anybody that came out over the last year has seen historically, frankly, stratospheric multiples on even smaller practices. And those don't really hold up in today's environment. So if you can manage the solicited expectation, there are, there's enormous activity out there waiting to happen. And GI is certainly one of the hotter spaces in the sense that everybody's caught on. Everybody realizes the benefits of scale. And I think you're seeing a lot of exploratory activity. So it's, the question really is one of, of when the debt markets uh, loosen up a little bit, which then will start to certainly heat things up as we march around this, the, the most telegraphed recession in US history, in my opinion. It'll be interesting to see how everybody gathers at the end of 23 around M&A activity. We haven't personally seen it slow down. We've just seen a lot more uh, pointed conversations around value, around sort of post-deal synergy and arbitrage and what that risk is, so that when we make that investment, we're, we're feeling good about the debt cost and the growth potential of the market. But, but that point is so is so true. When you, you talk to an independent practice, they're a little bit more nervous about their future, at least in some areas. They're still sort of looking at pricing from early 2022, and, and the private equity funds are looking at pricing at the end of 2022. And you do have a little bit of a delta between those two currently, uh, but still tremendous interest. And quite frankly, some of the selling practices and some of the specialties are more interested than they've been in some time as they've seen some leakage in their own portfolios and, and so forth. I mean, it's really a fascinating environment where you do have that slight gap in valuations right now, buyers being a little more careful and sellers you know, still hanging on to pricing they saw six months or a year ago. Really a fascinating situation. It really is. It's, um, it's a really royal market, unlike anything I've ever seen in 30 years. And I think like all royal markets that are disruptive and kind of in transition, it represents periods of opportunity for those who have their fundamentals solid, who are paying attention to the strategic focus and outcomes and can follow those business practices and execute on some innovative strategy. That's Those are gonna be the folks you see emerge out of this window of time, I think really ahead of the group, Scott. 
You made a fascinating comment. I, I, I actually love the comment and the quote, the most telegraphed recession in the history of, of the United States or the world. And that is so right on in terms of sort of the almost the effort of Chairman Powell to push us towards slower growth to get us back you know, to inflation a little bit further down. Any sense that workforce productivity and the way that we work has changed the dynamics on some of that to where it's a, seems a little harder for him to get what he wants in terms of hitting inflation without causing a very difficult recession because workforce productivity seems to be so down. Any sense that that telegraphed recession is more troubling than they may project it to be? Or any thoughts on that? I think that's, you've hit on the magic question, which is, I, I think Chairman Powell is trying to thread a needle based on predicate knowledge. Um, it's kind of like, why, why is the weather much more, why does it seem more difficult to predict today? It's based on predicate patterns, which are changing rapidly thanks to climate change. I, I think the last five years have dramatically shifted how we work, which means that the tools available to the Fed are likely to have an unpredictable effect on what it is we do. You also have enormous quantities of cash sitting in the top one to 2%, and their demand hasn't gone down. In fact, they're being opportunistic as people get into sort of a recessionary fear on, on asset sales. And that maintains that level of inflation or stagflation, if you will. So I, I think it's yet to be seen. There's an enormous worry about the labor side and healthcare because we simply don't have a lot of elasticity in the labor system. The last 25 years of of Six Sigma and focus on efficiencies and just in time on the supply side, as well as leaning up of staffing models to extract every available dollar have left us sitting without a lot of elasticity. And that doesn't work well uh, if you have no elastic in your pants and you're gaining weight fast. You know, it starts to get tight. It, it really is challenging. And as part of the workforce has, you know, picked up on the concept that they'd rather work remotely, it, it's left any kind of in-person jobs in a, in a much harder position from an inflation and keeping a built standpoint. Any part of the workforce that requires in-person work is just a much tougher economy for employers than is that part of the economy where at least you could offer remote work. And it is really challenging, isn't it? That is spot on. That's what I think that's what hits healthcare the hardest. We typically used to compete with maybe the orthopedic practice across town or the hospital. Now what you're competing with is a whole range of jobs that people who were in medical assistant roles, even nursing roles and physician roles have said, you know what, um, I'm done with this. I can make a living that I find acceptable, in fact, even enjoyable, and I can now live in rural Montana or wherever it is that you want to live and, and enjoy life in a different way. So I think you're seeing this pullback from, call it what you want, I think the cultural terms are toxic productivity, things like that. It, it's just a shift in healthcare with all of its in-person only work is dramatically feeling the effects of this. There's not really an alternative to doing surgery without everybody being in the building yet. Yet it's, and it's really hard to recruit those people to do it. It really is fascinating. And there's so many alternatives. Uh, and there's people that have chosen to left the workforce too. They've chosen to at least be out of the workforce in part, and that leads to shortages as well. Robbie, one GI CEO, brilliant perspectives on GI, on private equity, on the world as a whole, and healthcare. Thank you so much for joining us today in the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. We'll also release this in the Becker 
Private Equity Podcast. Robbie, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure, Scott, always. Thank you.